This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hi, Dave Brown here. I'm the host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now and in the know with information on news, politics, and technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community, which of course includes me. So give Now with Dave Brown a listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Tales from the Halifax School for the Blind, an AMI audio original podcast where we explore what everyday life was like inside this legendary institution. Join me, Terry Kelly, and my fellow former students as we take a trip down memory lane, reflecting on formative experiences and cherished memories from our beloved alma mater. Those outside Atlantic Canada may not be familiar with the rich history of the Halifax School for the Blind, known first as the Halifax Asylum for the Blind when it opened in 1871. Due in no small part to the passion and resourcefulness of founder and superintendent Sir Charles Frederick Fraser, the school soon earned an international reputation of being at the very forefront of education for the blind. Over the span of 112 years, the Halifax School for the Blind met and for many students far exceeded its reputation. It became home to thousands of blind and visually impaired children from all over Atlantic Canada and beyond. To get a better sense for the setting of our stories, Vivian O'Neill joined us from her home in Charlottetown, PEI, to share her first impressions of the school building and grounds. Well, I used to love that in the facing of the school at the front, there was this old Nova Scotia granite. In that old Nova Scotia granite, there's little sort of specks of glass or, you know, whatever it is. So I would love watching the sun speckle through this. So it would kind of react like, you know, it would be a gross exaggeration to say like diamonds, but little specks of glass in the granite. And I used to enjoy watching. But of course, the wood was everywhere and uh, it was really nice and warm and and of course, you know, the grandfather clock was just a part of our lives. It kind of ran everything, you know. And the other thing was that the woman who was the wife of the, Mr. Allen, the superintendent, Mrs. Allen, she played a, a very important role. She kind of looked after the girls and she had other things. And she had huge rubber plants all up and down the hallways. And so wherever you went, there were these. And people didn't seem to really like them, but I loved them. They were green, and I just loved walking by them, these big old rubber plants. They were on both sides for probably, gosh, 30 or 40 feet between the two buildings when they had it, where they had a corridor. There was sort of a front foyer area. In the front of the building were three main rooms, two classrooms and one common room, and then this sort of foyer where the stairs were off of. And, and then I remember, I think I vaguely, I don't remember the di- the dormitories. I remember being in a little room, a big room with six or seven other small children in small beds, just like Madeline. <laughs> little tiny beds, every, everything the same. Probably the closest approximation that anybody can get to what our school was like was this, uh, all the scenes from the Harry Potter residential school. It was just very similar to that. And the old buildings, the kind of the old traditions, the old staff, uh, you know, the mind your manners, uh, all the old traditions that everybody had to follow, the regimentation, the, the classes. Yeah, it was exactly the same. <laughs> the old Halifax School was a big change from Lot 16, where Vivian grew up about 10 miles west of Summerside, Prince Edward Island. 
Surrounded by her grandparents and many aunts, uncles, and cousins, Vivian's young life on the Royal McLean farm was full of adventure. Perhaps this is why, when she left her parents' two sisters and a brother behind to move to Halifax in 1960, she was quickly drawn to the thrills and excitement of the school playground. As children will tell you, the best things are the most dangerous things. And we had some pretty high jungle gyms and we had some pretty amazing swings. They, we performed miracles on those swings. We, of course, there was a you know, learn to swing and then the run through and then the high as you can and then the high as you can and jump off. And yeah, we were pretty, um, and then we had this merry-go-round that was incredibly dangerous. Like if you got stuck on the inside and fell, it was just, you know, and then the boys would get pulling, pushing it on the outside and you'd have to hang on for dear life to not fall off of the centrifugal force. At the bottom of it, it was sort of like a wild garden or a beautiful garden. I think they took a lot of pride in their grounds and so you could wander through there and there was Pacifica and lilacs and yeah pretty nice <laughs> and we had a skating rink so yeah for Vivian the school library was a source of far more adventure than even the playground could offer we had a braille library and uh, it was a marvelous marvelous old place huge and the shelves went from the floor to the ceiling and way way up at the top of the ceiling were really ancient books they weren't braille they were sort of raised print and that was a probably 60, 70 years old by that, even at that time in the 1960s. Nobody read that form anymore or tried to. But we we read, I think we made our way through everything in that library. And of course, you can read all night then. <laughs> so I would read all night. And um, every now and again, there was an elderly night watchman who was much loved by all the other students. But he and I were kind of enemies because I knew he knew that I was reading. And even though it wasn't any of his business, he didn't really like anybody being awake all night. So yeah, every now and again, he'd stop at the door and stare in, but he would just let it go. But he knew I was awake and reading. And, uh, but you can read all night because you don't need a light. So I would just, and I would read at recess. I'm going to put my hands in the desk and read. And yeah, mine was kind of... <laughs> But we were very lucky. We had the library. The librarian was very kind. She was delighted to have kids who were... Of course, we had all the old classics. We were reading Dickens and all of the old classics at a very early age because that's what we had to read. So we were grateful to have it. And we made our way through a lot of books, Braille books. As impressive as the facilities were, it was the kindness and devotion of the school staff that truly made Vivian feel at home. We had staff who were always very kind and... I think we, our school took a lot of care and pride in, in being uh, a good school and, and looking after us. And I had formed a great friendship, I think, as everyone else did, with our head house parent, whose name was Miss Connors. She was a married little kind lady. She lived in a beautiful big room in the front of the building, great big, huge bay windows. And she would, on very special occasions, invite you in, maybe in ones or twos, and, and just make a little bit of a treat of, of serving you some or something we weren't supposed to have, like tea or coffee or, or just a little bit of ginger ale. And she would chat and play classical music. And then after you go again, we'd have your treats, you know. And uh, she and I were, were friends for 10 years. I really, I owe, her, I owe her a great deal. She was always very calm and quiet and even-tempered. And she was a marvelous example of how to live a dignified and sensible life. Now, she was visually impaired herself, but she could read with a magnifying glass. But... That was a wonderful thing at school. We had role models and we realized, you know, very quickly that they were very capable people who were visually impaired or blind. All of our staff were wonderful and dedicated, but the people who had the visual impairments, they they were special. We just sort of had a special bond with them and 
they had that one little notch up of commitment and, and know-how that was really special. They were very accomplished in their own right, and, and they, were, they had a dignity that bespoke the pride they took in their, in their accomplishment. Not one to stand still, Vivian was eager to start her life outside the school. She continued to live in the girls' dorm, but completed her secondary education at the nearby Queen Elizabeth High School. She then attended UPEI for two years before moving to London, England to complete a three-year physical therapy course, and later became Mrs. Vivian O'Neill. Following her studies in London, Vivian enjoyed a career in Charlottetown as a physiotherapist and policy analyst with Veterans Affairs Canada. Now retired, she is still passionate about education and continues to take courses on favorite subjects such as kinesiology, religious studies, and history. Up next, Robert Mercer, the man whose book, Mrs. Beaton's Question, inspired this very podcast. Back in 1958, at the age of 10, Robert left his parents and six siblings behind in Sydney, Cape Breton, to move to a school over 250 miles away. From his home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Robert joined us to talk about the heart-wrenching decision his parents faced sending their son so far away from home. He also shared his early experiences at the school he would call home for nine years. Um, the first few years of my education were not uh, what I call fond memories. I was at a public school in Sydney. Not much attention given to uh, anybody who had a vision problem, or I probably would say almost any kind of a disability. Uh, there were 30, 40 children usually in the classroom. Teachers didn't have the time to spend with me in particular, so not the best of memories uh, starting off. And uh, when I was in grade three, uh, it was a great shock to me. I failed. Up until then, I'd spent three years in school, basically nothing but uh, stars on my report cards going from grade primary to grade one, two, and eventually to grade three. And then all of a sudden, I, I failed. I remember the, the day, grading day itself, and the uh, bringing that report card home to my mother. I don't think she was as shocked as I was, but uh, she did say something to the effect that, uh, oh, it's, it's nice sometimes to fail a grade. It, uh, it allows you to restart and uh, maybe even be a step ahead of somebody else because you know some of the subject matter. Uh, anyways, that didn't necessarily make me feel a lot better. I, I, I would have to say for a few days there, I just didn't understand what was happening, you know. And then in the middle of that, uh, actually the very day of grading, the teacher came to visit my parents. I remember seeing her coming up the driveway in this red dress. And because she had the red dress on that morning, I knew it was her. The only thing that crossed my mind is that, well, she must have made a mistake. She must be coming to tell my parents that uh, I got the wrong report card. I snuck into the house and uh, went upstairs. My mother had didn't see me, and I listened as she came into the house and into the living room and sat down with my mother and basically telling her that she couldn't teach me at school, that I wasn't where I should be. She talked a little bit about this school for the blind in a place called Halifax, not sure I even knew the city existed at the time. My mother, of course, wasn't prepared to send a nine-year-old that far away from home. So that meeting lasted maybe for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. But the teacher, I, I, I really admire her for coming and, and uh, saying to my parents, basically, that Robert's not learning in my school, and I don't know how he even got here. 
And I think that was even more of a shock to me than failing grade three. How did I get there? So I'm thinking, listening to this conversation, I'm thinking, oh, did, did I fail those grades as well? You know, and obviously I wasn't doing well at school. And I think I knew that deep down inside. But when you get stars on your report card, you don't sort of necessarily see it that way. And you don't necessarily know there's anybody else who's doing any better. Though Robert's struggles at his school in Sydney were now undeniable, it took a passionate plea from George Woods to convince Robert's parents that leaving home was truly in his best interests. George was the district director for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind in the Sydney district. And uh, he brought my mother information and about the School for the Blind in Halifax and uh, talked to her about why it was important that I be sent there. And she wasn't really going to have any part of that. She made that very clear. Um, and even the fact that he was totally blind in the beginning, I, I think it, it, it sort of um, it was rather intriguing, I think, for my mother that somebody who's this blind, blinder than I was at the time, uh, could be doing so well. And it must have made an impression upon her. The second visit probably didn't go too much better than that. But he came back in, in, um, in late August or couldn't have been more than a week or two before school was about to start in Halifax. And um, I, I suppose at some point he was, you know, giving up, thinking, well, there's maybe next year, but this is not going to work. Before he left the house, he said to my mother, he said, you know, I don't mean to be harsh with you, but when Robert grows up, he's going to realize that he, he didn't get an education because his parents decided not to send him to school. I'm upstairs again listening. She doesn't know I'm there, and she burst into tears. And I'll never forget that. And she said to uh, George Wood, uh, give me the papers. I'll sign them right now. Give me, give me the papers. Before I change my mind, give me the papers. I, I'll never forget those words. And I'm upstairs thinking, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. She was smart enough to know a lot better than me at the time, and she did sign the papers. Two weeks later, I got in a car with uh, my mother and father, and my brother, who was one year younger than me, uh, a brother who basically was stuck to me, I think, for the nine years or so that I was uh, living at home. We were that close. And uh, we drove to um, Halifax. We arrived at the School for the Blind late in the afternoon. I remember looking up at this building and thinking, I'm not staying here. Uh, sort of my first thought is, I'm not staying here, you know. But... A gentleman came to the door and, and met us, a man by the name of um, Mr. Hawes, and he basically took us through the school, the school building itself, the residential building, explained, you know, where everything was located. For me, it was going in one ear and out the next because I, I, I'd already decided I'm not staying here. It was a very old school. The building's very old. It was, at that point, almost 100 years old, parts of the building. There were some newer sections, some of the classrooms that had been built later on as the school started to expand. I was made to sleep there that night, and the next day my parents came with my brother to say goodbye, and I kind of thought they were coming to pick me up, you know, to take me home. And for some reason, I don't know why, I decided that I'm, I'm just going to stay with what goes, you know. They came basically to say goodbye. They were gone within a short period of time, and there I was in this building. There were, I didn't know anybody except Mr. Hawes. I don't think I ever felt so lonely. I went up into the, uh, the dormitory. I remember lying on the bed there, and I probably cried for two days. 
things go, you, uh, you know, gradually adjust. You see things a little bit differently over time. Going down to dinner with the boys and then breakfast the next morning and sleeping in the same dorm. It uh, wasn't long before you kind of felt that, well, this is my home. Right away, Robert was making friends and discovering some major differences between classes at the Halifax School for the Blind and his public school back home in Sydney. A friend of mine, Tony, who I had met at breakfast the day earlier, Tony and I were in the same class, classroom, grade three. We walked to the, through the building and into uh, what was called the new wing of the building and into a small classroom where there were maybe three or four tables and chairs enough to seat maybe eight to ten students and no more. And I sat there and I just, I waited, uh, wondering, where's everybody at? Where are all the kids, you know? I was used to seeing 40 children in a classroom. One or two of the kids came over and said hello, and that kind of helped break the ice a bit. And uh, when the teacher came in, her name was Mrs. Beaton, a teacher I remember very well, started the class, and I realized uh, this is not like home. She was doing things that other teachers hadn't done before. She was talking to me directly. She was calling me by name once in a while. She didn't use the blackboard. She walked over to where students were. She'd bend down and say something so that they would understand and show them things, uh, show them by hand. And in the middle of all of this, she called my name, which for me was rather startling. I don't know that anybody ever did that at school before. She asked me to stand and tell the class where I came from. She wanted my address for her book. So I stood up and did that and uh, realized in the middle of it that I, I'm, I'm never, I'm, I don't think I've ever been asked a question in a classroom before. I realized, I think, in that little instant of time that I can learn just as well as anybody else. It was kind of a, an epiphany for me just to be in that classroom that first morning. Initially frightened and terribly homesick, Robert quickly adapted to life at the school. He began to thrive thanks to the efforts of Principal Low Leg and dedicated teachers such as former Nickerson and Mr. Brooks. When the young Mr. Mercer left the school in 1967, he was one of their more outgoing yet studious graduates. Robert proceeded to St. Mary's University in Halifax for a degree in economics. He then briefly studied law at Dalhousie University before changing course and starting a career with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. At 30 years old, Robert became president and CEO of the CNIB, overseeing a staff of 3,000 and more than 100,000 volunteers across Canada. Robert began a second career in 1982 when he joined the Federal Public Service. He retired as Assistant Deputy Minister of Veterans Affairs Canada in Charlottetown in 2007. Now, Robert enjoys tending to his garden and writing books, mostly fiction for children and the young at heart. In Mrs. Beaton's Question, his most recent book, published by Acorn Press, Robert shares many more wonderful stories from his life inside the school. Note from the host, Mrs. Beaton's question is a must and fabulous read. Our final storyteller today is yours truly, Terry Kelly. I grew up in a large family on Torbay Road, on the outskirts of St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. In 1961, I left my parents three sisters and four brothers to take an epic two-day journey 
on two trains and a ferry to the Halifax School for the Blind. But more on that in a future episode. I spent the next decade learning from wonderful teachers like Mrs. Miller, Mrs. Casey, Mr. Brooks, and music teachers Miss Hubley and Mrs. McCurdy. My journey to the Halifax School for the Blind, which eventually became known as the Sir Frederick Fraser School for the Blind, began after spending two years in a in a Catholic school system in St. John's, Newfoundland, St. Pi's 10th School. I learned a lot there. It was a great experience, but it wasn't enough for a kid who was totally blind. And finally, as has happened with lots of children back then, the CNIB was was an organization that helped people who lost their sight their sight later in life to adapt to being uh, partially sighted or blind. But they also uh, uh, encouraged parents to send their children to the Halifax School for the Blind, uh, those children who lived in Atlantic Canada. And so a man named Mr. Story came to my mom and dad's house one night in summer after two years in kindergarten. And he was a man who was totally blind. And he started talking about why it might be a good idea for my parents to consider sending me to Halifax to go to school. And when my mom heard that I would have to be away from home nine months of every year, she, I remember, I was outside the kitchen. They were chatting with Mr. Story, and I was just kind of off to the side listening to this conversation. And I could hear my mom um, tearing up a bit and my dad asking questions and wondering what it would be like. And Mr. Story was giving them a, a picture of of all the things that I was going to learn, how I'd be able to do things that all that my brothers and sisters were able to do and my cousins and friends, how I'd learn to do those things, but do them differently, but do them in a way where I could actually participate and be comfortable uh, as a kid who was blind uh, when I came back home and into the future. I always like to say that my dad, uh, uh, with eight kids, was thinking to himself, huh, okay, one kid away for nine months of the year, one less mouth to feed, maybe this would be a good idea for the home budget. Of course, my dad never thought that, but I, I like to sort of visit that as a possibility. In any case, so after the uh, formal meeting was over with Mr. Story, and they were all having a cup of tea and a sandwich. It came out that Mr. Story was telling my parents how he had been painting his house on the weekends uh, when he was off work. And that, this fascinated my dad. And uh, my dad would ask him how how he um, could paint his house without making a mess and how he'd paint his house without missing spots. And Mr. Story said, well, it gets a little messy. Uh, but I check, I paint a bit and check with my other hand and paint a bit and check with my other hand. And he said, eventually with work and with a little bit of feedback from my wife, it gets done. So up to this time, my brothers and I had a responsibility to scrape the paint and my brothers would paint, but I never got to do that. So I'm thinking, Hey, maybe now I'll get to paint. Then Mr. Story, before he left, also called me over to the table and he pulled out his braille slate and stylus was the an old way of, of, of writing Braille. And he said, have a look at this, Terry. And he wrote my name and got me to put my fingers on these dots 
with my name. And I remember from that time, I mean, I look at my name written in Braille now, and obviously I know what it looks like. But that, when I, when he put my fingers on the Braille with my name, although it seemed like a big bunch of dots, which in fact it was, uh, the shape of my name, my first name, Terry, and then Kelly, a little space after it, the shape of my first name and the shape of my second name, I never forgot that, although the dots didn't mean anything at the time. And he said, look, even though these dots seem a little um, confusing right now, he said, you're going to learn to read books and read stories. And he said, your mom was telling me how your brothers and your sisters would go to the library here uh, once a week to pick up books, and they'd have to read to you. He said, you will be able to pick up your own book and begin to read with this Braille. And it really excited me because I always remember how quiet the house got after everybody came back from the library and they were reading their books. And I was waiting for my mom to find some time after she did the other house chores to read to me or get one of my brothers and sisters to read to me after they got a start on their books. And they were very kind and thoughtful by reading to me. But uh, when the quiet was there, when they were doing their reading, I would always imagine what it would be like for me to do it. And now this was happening. So I was thinking, you know, the fact that Mr. Story told my mom and dad that, you know, uh, that he was a painter of his house, metaphorically, he was painting this picture of what my life could be if I went to the school. Uh, from there, I went to uh, spend time taking piano lessons, had great phys ed teachers, had some wonderful teachers all, all around. Also, the house parents that eventually came to the school, people who took care of us after the classes were done, were some extremely amazing people. A lot of them were retired Army, Air Force, Navy people. And they put a lot of magic, um, it's more than magic, I guess, to put, put the realism of life they programmed that into all of us, and uh, which put us on some amazing paths uh, into our future. So we got to do that, spent many years at the school, back home every summer. As I came back for the summers, because of the things I learned at the school, I was able to integrate myself into everything my brothers and sisters did, to dive, to swim, to make stilts. Uh, taught, I taught my brothers and friends how to make stilts, uh, taught them how to walk on them. So I'd come home and actually show my sighted friends and brothers and sisters how to do things. So I, the school prepared me for the big world in, a, in an amazing way. It was a second home. It was a way home away from home. And when I was there, sometimes I would complain about being there and, you know, saying bad things about the school for whatever reason, just because I guess we we're kids. But really, it was a, it was one of the, well, one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest opportunities, one of the most wonderful, um, transformational experiences of my life. It was, uh, my, my life was, determined by that school. And I, every day, even as a, you know, an adult now, every day, one of my gratitudes, and I, you know, I have a string of gratitudes every day that I'm thankful for. I thank my parents for making the decision to send me to the school uh, because it really was an amazing gift, amazing way for me to become independent and to have a vision of my own for my own life. So Mr. Story painted a picture 
gave me the picture, gave my parents this, this picture and made it exciting. And by him telling us about painting his house was something that we, my dad could never imagine me doing, nor could I, based on, I guess, what my dad believed. And now it was opening pages and opportunities and teaching me to be a dreamer, to use my imagination for what my life could be. And what a life it has been. I finished my time at the Halifax School for the Blind in grade 11, completed grade 12 at Queen Elizabeth High School, and continued on to St. Mary's University from there. By that time, I'd spent two summers touring Ontario with the Stringbusters, the band I formed with classmates from the school. The love of music, the challenge and excitement of sport, and the independence and confidence instilled in me by my teachers and house parents gave all my schoolmates and me insatiable appetites for continuous learning. And, I must say, it has stayed with us to this day. Well, that's our show, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to these tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. Please join us again next time. This podcast was recorded and produced by Village Sound at the Village Sound Studios in Halifax, Nova Scotia. For Accessible Media Inc., created and produced by Ryan Delahanty, tech assistance from Sam Robinson, and many thanks to Andy Frank, manager for AMI-audio. Special thanks to Vivian O'Neill, Cleon Smith, Joanna Pierce, and staff at the Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority. Our deepest gratitude goes out to Robert Mercer, whose book inspired this podcast, and to Mrs. Beaton and all the wonderful teachers, staff, and house parents at the Halifax School for the Blind. I'm your host, Terry Kelly. If you enjoyed our show, please do take the time to subscribe and write us a review. Most of all, we would love to hear from any former students who are invited to join us in sharing their tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.